Would you join with me in prayer? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you for your consistency. I thank you for your character. And I pray, Lord, help us to lean into both of those as we trust in you on those really fun weeks and those really hard weeks and those really boring weeks and those really eventful weeks. I pray, Lord, help us to remember that they're all just weeks and that we'll be with you for eternity. So help us to have that long ball view. I pray right now that you open up your word to us even as we open up our hearts to your word. Fill us with your spirit. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> well, I alluded to this last week at the end of the service. Um, we're going to talk about one of my all-time favorite books. And um, I'm going to do something I've never done. I'm going to talk a little bit about Ecclesiastes. Oh, that was harsh. That was harsh, people. I love Ecclesiastes. And some of you who have sat in my Bible study have said, no, no, Kevin, you have talked about it. You have talked ad nauseum about Ecclesiastes. Yes, but I have not talked a little about Ecclesiastes. (laughs) And I was careful to phrase it that way. Because you can do Ecclesiastes a bunch of different ways. Like in, in, in small group Bible study when we spent 12 weeks going through Ecclesiastes. And Brian Berry wanted to strangle me by the end. Lovingly, lovingly, respectfully. Or I could just read it all in one sitting. And then everybody would just want to strangle themselves. Because people find themselves getting very depressed reading Ecclesiastes. But to study it a little bit, to spend like three weeks looking at Ecclesiastes, I've never really done that before. But that's what we're going to do. We're we're not going to read all of it, but we're going to look at large chunks of it but we're going to remind ourselves what Ecclesiastes is because I think that's important, what it was designed to be. Because every book in the Bible is its own distinct rhetorical artifact. It's its own thing. It's all part of one Bible, and every verse in it is important, but no book of the Bible is just a collection of verses. They're all designed to be specific things, specific genres, specific structures. And Ecclesiastes, much like Romans in the New Testament, is designed to be an argument, and a beautiful one. By argument, I don't mean, you're fat, and throw a... No, that's not what I'm talking That's a fight. An argument is where you build a case, and you say, this is logic, and I'm going to try to help you to understand something. But whereas in the New Testament, Romans, Paul is saying, I'm going to make an impeccable case here because I'm smart and I know stuff. And he's right. Ecclesiastes is Solomon saying, I'm going to make an impeccable case because I'm the smartest guy who has ever lived. And I've been a complete idiot. That's my argument. And my argument by definition is, y'all kind of like that too. In some ways, it's it's very American in, in that it's very individualistic and some of the stuff he's talking about, we should be able to relate to a great deal. And in some ways, this is one of the most un-American books in the entire Bible because it flat out says, this is all wrong-headed. So at some point, I'm going to offend you. I don't mean to, but I like him because much like James, he doesn't pull any punches. Even as he's offending me, as I feel skewered, he's not pulling any punches. But it's the quintessential book about a sophomore, a wise fool. Somebody's like, I'm smart enough to know all the missteps I've made. 
I get it. He's Salgari looking at things going, I see why what I've done is not good enough. I get this. I've been given, I prayed for a little wisdom. God gave me more wisdom than anybody. And my life proves that just because I have wisdom doesn't mean I've always lived by it. Just because I know stuff doesn't mean I'm doing it right. Does it? You ever known stuff and then still done something wrong? I have three times. <laughs> Since the service began. I mean, no, serious. I, we, we mess this up all the time. And in an age, let's face it, in a culture where wisdom is increasingly rare, but we're all increasingly certain that we're increasingly right all the time about everything, Agatha Christie fans are split right now. It's amazing that people are like, nope, there's two camps on every possible way of looking at everything. At a time when we're dealing with all that, it's probably good for us not only to look at what's arguably one of the Bible's wisest books, but at a book dedicated to the proposition that just because you claim to have wisdom, maybe even you do have wisdom, it doesn't mean you're doing it right. I like this. So, open up your Bibles, if you haven't already done so, to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And let's start off looking at this. The words, it says, of the teacher. And even that, I've got to stop, because it's an interesting word here. It, it, it means... Um, it means like uh, the, the speaker or the teacher of the congregation. Um, so like a professor in a college, or even better yet, a preacher. Somebody who is preaching to the congregation. It's translated in Greek as ecclesiastu, which you should hear ecclesia, the church, the congregation in. Which is why it was Latinized later into ecclesiastes. So now you know the name of the book. The name of the book is The Preacher. So we're going to read about what the preacher says. These are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. Pointless! It's all pointless! It's totally, totally lame! Everything's lame! Next week, we're... No, I mean, seriously, look at the... This way starts with meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Or, if you're reading the King James, vanity. Vanity, it's all vanity. But the word itself just means puff of breath. It's all just temporary. Nothing. It's empty. It's hollow. Everything is hollow. That's what this book is about. It's all pointless. Like the familiar line from Proverbs that was edited by Solomon. Remember when I was talking about in, in Proverbs 31, talking about women of substance? Charm is a lie, right? It's going to lie to you. And beauty is, poof, it's a temporary puff of air. But a woman who fears Yahweh, she's to be praised, right? Or the psalmist, Maybe even Solomon himself, who wrote in Psalm 94, Yahweh knows the thoughts of a man. He knows that they're all just empty, hollow, puff of air. Even David wrote in, in Psalm 62, low-born men are and high-born men are a lie. It's all just, I mean, you put them in a balance and they go up. They're the thing that has no substance. What would you put on the other side? Anything. Because you put them together and they're less than. Poof. 
What's interesting to me is not only is that word used repeatedly in the Bible to talk about things that are worthless because of their insubstantiality, but it's used 35 times in this book alone. Four times in the opening verse here alone. What does that suggest about what Solomon's going to be trying to argue here? So much of what we put stock in today, so much of what we argue about today, so much about what we fret and stress and fume and hate about today, what we post about, what we worry about, what affects us, so much of that is just... No, no, I'm already undercutting. I'm already undermining his, his argument. Did he say so much of that is poofed? All of it. I'm not saying that something's... I'm not saying it's because these things don't matter. I'm saying it's because nothing matters. Nothing matters. For the reasons you think they do. And you go, well, I mean, something, stop, nothing. If you say, if I say nothing matters here, and you go, okay, that's just not true. Buckle up, that's what this book is about. Nothing on this place matters for what you think that matters. And I should stop. We should make a choice. Let's you and me, let's make a choice together before we go any further. Because there's a couple of different ways that you can read Ecclesiastes. You can read it as depressing because the preacher rips down everything. Says everything that you could possibly go, well, I mean this. This matters. He's going to go, no, no, it really doesn't. And get to the end of the book and you're depressed. You can do that. Or you can see it as a moral, emotional, psychological, theological cleanse. Where he's like, you get to the end of the book and he's like, have I ripped away everything that you could be going, well, but I mean, so that I can tell you what does matter and you can start rebuilding with that. See, I love this book, even as it's ripping my priorities down. Not because I agree with everything naturally, because <laughs> a lot of what he does goes flat out against what my inclinations are. But I love this book because he's reminding us what things really are. And it, every time I read Ecclesiastes, some part of it slaps me upside the head. Every single time I read it, I'm like, oh, that's right. I just messed that up yesterday. But he says everything, our works, our resumes, our, our passions, all the things we invest in, if this world will someday pass away, and it will, what here is actually worth investing in? It was a rhetorical question, but I'll take it. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Meaningless, says the preacher. Meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is just a puff of breath. What does a man gain from all of his labor at which he toils under the sun? That's another phrase I should pull out that he uses a lot, like 30 times in this book. Some derivation of under the sun. If you look at this world as this world, all the stuff in it, and all the stuff going on in it, for its sake, how should you view it? If you're looking at the stuff here, the wisest man who ever lived saw it all as pointless, and he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. People will sometimes talk about geological time and say, well, if you're speaking in terms of millions, billions of years, your 75-year existence is like a blip. It's like an eye blink in geological time. Okay? If we truly believe the Bible, we truly believe this book, that you're not just going to exist for millions of years, billions of years, trillions of years, a Googleplex of years, but for eternity? 
if we truly believe that pleasantly or unpleasantly, you will exist forever, what should we invest in here? Which things last and which things don't? The earth itself, we're told, will eventually pass away, right? I'm not saying that nothing here matters. I'm not saying that at all. And I would argue neither is is Solomon. It's not that nothing matters. Because there's a reason why 30 times he says, under the sun, under the sun. It's not that nothing matters. But does it matter in and of itself? Does the thing itself matter? Does the thing that we're trying to do here, does the thing on earth, does that matter? And he's like, no. Over and over, no. And I'll show you that it's all just this brief, pointless shadow play that points to real meaning. But we all get so used to the shadow play, we think that's all there is. Remind me sometime to tell you about Plato's Allegory of the Cave, where he talks about everybody, if they're just looking at the shadow play on the wall, and that's all they've ever seen, they think that's what reality is. They wouldn't even understand if you turn them around and say, here's the 3D thing that's actually going on. They go, what? Solomon says, 3D. You've been looking at everything two-dimensionally. This passes away. This is just a shadow play. What up here is casting the shadow? What's the thing that really matters? What does a man gain from all of his labor under uh, which he toils under the sun? All this... Poof, generations come, generations go. The earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and then it turns to the north and round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All the streams just flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the places the streams come from, somehow they keep going there. Geologically, it's all just the same. Even if you turned and changed the course of mighty rivers, if you stopped actively changing those courses in a million years, 10,000 years, 100 years, will they cut back to their original courses? You can't change anything meaningfully. Which is why he says all things are just wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough seeing. The ear never has enough hearing. And that has not changed, has it, since he wrote this? That we crave more and more and more, and yet it satisfies less and less and less? You know, every year, every year, we create more data than the entirety of human history had leading up to the year 2000? Every year, every 18 months, we double the amount of data that we create. 2021, we created something like 70 zettabytes of data, which doesn't mean a lot to most of us. We don't normally deal with zettabytes in our everyday... Um, Think of it this way. If we take one bit of data, and for those of you old enough to remember, the Commodore 64... That thing rocked. That was, that was a lot better than the computer I had because I had a buddy of mine that explained, oh, your computer's a joke. My computer has eight bits of RAM. <laughs> I have text files that are bigger than eight bits on my computer right now. Anyway, but if, if you took a bit of data, just a bit, um, a, 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 and think of it as a nickel, a zettabyte of data, would be a stack of nickels that would reach 2,500 light years. 
And if you go, huh, it means a stack of nickels that's a zettabyte of data would reach to Sarah's Alpha Centauri 600 times. We produced 70 of those last year. Which means you go to Alpha Centauri 42,000 times. That's how much data we produce. Google that sometime. I don't mean Google that fact. I mean Google that much data. Go. (laughs) And yet we keep making more. The annual growth rate for that is 61%. Next year, we'll, pres- we'll do 61% more. The year after that, 61% more than that. It's never enough. He says, all things are wearisome. More than you can say, the eye will never have enough seeing. The ear will never have enough hearing. We're drowning in information, but there are never enough pics and videos for us to get enough. There's never enough Wikipedia articles. Never. And what we... What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Not really. Just the expressions of it. Are you naive enough to think that this is the first pandemic that we've been through as a species? This is the first time Russian troops have been in Ukraine. Any porn that you will find on the internet was on the walls of Pompeii. We've seen it. Everything has been done already. We're just... Rearranging the pieces and doing it with slightly new technology. Is there anything of which one can possibly say, this is new, and the novelty of it itself is worthwhile? He says, no. It's, it's already been here already, long ago. It was here before our time. COVID itself is just like a weak version of the Spanish flu. Hasn't killed anywhere near as many people as the Spanish flu. And how do we deal with it? pretty much the way we dealt with the Spanish flu. Some better technology, but look at pictures from 100 years ago. There's pastors preaching from their porches and everybody wearing masks. It's not new. And yet so many people go, I don't know anything about the Spanish flu. At least they didn't two years ago. There's no remembrance of men of old. Even those things which are yet to come will be not remembered by those who follow. Y'all remember Theodosius? Y'all remember Theodosius, right? On this day, 380 AD, Theodosius was the first emperor to specifically say to the Roman Empire, "May may I encourage all of you to accept Christ as your personal savior, like I have. I think that's huge, don't you? But we don't remember it. Because it was yesterday. We don't remember it. You go, but but he, he's the emperor of the known world for them, and he called all of his people to accept Christ. You go, did they? Do you even remember how that people responded? What happened with them? And even if they did, everybody in Rome became Christians that day. Are they now? In and of itself. In and of itself. Just under the sun, does that matter? I'm telling you, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, Solomon writes. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that's done under heaven, under the sun. What a heavy burden God has laid on men to see things as they truly are. That's exhausting. It's heartbreaking because this place is broken. It's so broken, so fleeting. 
I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are just puff of breath, chasing after the wind, which is a play on words you may not have picked up on until you knew what that first word meant. Everything that you do here, to do here, everything you do here for this place's sake is just a puff of insubstantial air chasing after the insubstantial air. It's a puff of breath trying desperately to be the wind and both of them are hollow. You're so desperate to emulate the world, this hollow temporary place, that you become hollow and temporary. Your thought processes are hollow and temporary. I'm reminded of what God said uh, years, uh, to, to the prophet Jeremiah years later. Jeremiah 2, this is what Yahweh said. Verse 5, he says, What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed, and then they became, same word. They, they, they followed a puff of breath and became a puff of breath. Do we as Christians, in our priorities, in our mindsets, in our commitments, in our investments, do we reflect God's eternity more or this world's temporality more? Even when we're trying to do good things, really, really good things. Why? Why are we trying to do those really good things? Solomon says, you know, what's twisted can't be straightened. What's lacking can't be counted. We can't. And yet, even as Christians, good Christians, we're trying very hard constantly to straighten things that are twisted in this place, aren't we? Aren't we? We're trying to fill up what's lacking. We see something lacking, whether it's food or justice or whatever, and we say, we, we can fill that. And he says, really? Will it stay filled? Great, you fed him. So he'll never go hungry again, right? Look, you brought about justice. There will never be injustice again, right? You fixed the whole system, right? You fixed the core problem, right? There's a civil rights movement, so there are no more civil rights problems today, right? I thought to myself, look, we sit in a world that is experiencing moral entropy. It's morally actively decomposing itself, while at the same time nonetheless assuming that it's getting more and more awake and alert. We're fixing things better. More on a daily basis, we're trying more and more to be more aware, to be more fixing things. And yet the more we fix, the more we find we need to fix. And then stuff needs even more fixing. And then we need to fix the things that we just fixed because fixing this, we broke that. And so now we need to fix that, which this person says, well, this breaks this part. So we fix that. And other people say, well, that broke these parts. And we say, but I keep trying to fix the parts without changing you know, the core issue. And I keep breaking more things, which means I need to keep fixing more things until all we see is that there's fixing to be done and all we do is say, either stick your head in the sand or always be telling people it's all broken and they need to fix it. At some point, aren't we left with those two ways of thinking? I don't care about anything anymore or it's all just needing fixing all the time, all the time, fixing, 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 fixing until all we are is angry and dissatisfied and stressed and broken and fixing everything and yet being more proud that we are more fixed and then more upset when we say this is the least fixed the world has ever been. 
We need to fix it. We're fixing more than we have ever fixed, and it is less fixed than it has ever been, which justifies my existence as a fixer. Poof, 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 poof. Pointless, 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 pointless. It's running into an iceberg and say, I have a Band-Aid! I can fix it all. thought to myself, look, I've grown and I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge, yay! And yet, I I applied myself to the understanding of the wisdom and and also madness and folly, and I realized, wait, it's all just chasing after the wind. It's all just, it's, it's my puff of insubstantial air chasing after insubstantial air. Even understanding wisdom for the sake of understanding wisdom in this place, under the sun, is just a puff. It's nothing. Because with much wisdom comes much sorrow. And the more knowledge, the more grief. The more I learn, the more I learn that I didn't really want to know. The more I understand, the more I know that all this is going to bad places. And it's heartbreaking. But like Cassandra, I can't change any of it. I can see it, but it's like watching a slow train wreck. And I'm like, maybe I could save a couple people? Pull them off the train. So if my job, my reason for living is to save the people on this train, I could save two and 10,000 died. Oh, it's a long train. I'm a failure, right? If I risk my life to save these two people, because my whole job is saving people, and thousands died, do I feel good? Do I feel bad? If my job was to save people, didn't I waste it? Didn't I fail in it so what should we do should we give up our preacher goes on and says in chapter 2 verse 1 you know what i thought to myself come on i'm going to test you with pleasure to find out what's good i tested wisdom and i found wisdom's exhausting so i became a hedonist i'm going to say let's gonna live for today since ain't none of it really matters right does that sound like a modern culture you can imagine the hedonists of party, because, you know, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. The consumers that burn off tomorrow's resources because, well, I won't be here in 100 years, so who cares? Just going to do what I feel like doing. But then I found that that also proved to be poof, a puff of air, puff of breath. And not just because it doesn't last. He says, laughter itself is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? Uh, in and of itself, what's the point? What does it do? It makes me feel fine for a minute. But even the liquor that made me drunk yesterday might only have me cop a buzz today and may do nothing to me tomorrow because I've become inured to it. The whole point of living for pleasure is that once you get used to the pleasure, it becomes the status quo. Pleasure, by definition, is better than what you experienced yesterday. If I get used to it, then it's the status quo. And if I want pleasure, I have to take it to the next step. To be constantly living for pleasure for its own sake is self-defeating. You will never get enough. In fact, you'll get more and more and more to the point where you get drunk on it and get sick on it and realize that this is the best it ever gets. You want to torture somebody? There's a great Twilight Zone episode about this. You want to torture somebody? Give them everything they want. You want to be a horrible parent? Give your kids everything they ask for. Let them do everything they want all the time. Every day. 
Give in. Give in to every, every demand. Give them everything they ever desire so that they get used to that. And when they've gotten everything that they ever wanted and they've gotten used to that, how can asking for something and get it ever be a joy in and of itself? If they get everything they want and get used to it, what can ever be the thing that they can hope for that will be better than today? If you're bored with everything and living for pleasure over boredom, well, that's hell on earth, isn't it? He says, I gave myself to everything to the point where he could never be satisfied. And if that's true over the span of years, how is that not true in the moment? If that's true, if you go logically, I can totally see where you're going with that. If you spend 30 years like that, it would be horrible. If it's true over 30 years, how can it not be true over 30 seconds? Getting everything that you demand, can that possibly be ultimately satisfying? Or do you go, then I should demand more. What if there's no more? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, which is scary. Because he's like, I'm embracing being just crazy, stupid, party hedonist. And I knew exactly what I was doing. I chose it as an experiment to see if this worked. I'm not just an idiot. No, I'm a brilliant man trying to do this too. It's the most logical extreme. I wanted to see what if it was worthwhile for men to do under heaven. I wanted to see what is the best thing to do. And so I threw myself into everything the world has to offer within the world. And it's not just partying. I took up great projects. I built houses and planted vineyards. I, I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water groves of flourishing trees. I, brought, I bought male and female slaves, had other slaves who were even born in my house. I also owned, owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem or a whole bunch of really good musical instruments. The word is uncertain. But no matter how you want to say it, I did everything, all the delights of the hearts of man, everything you could possibly imagine. I partied like a rock star. I built the greatest projects. If you go, no, I want to be productive. I productived all over the place. Oh, I don't want that. I just want to be rich. I was filthy, stinking rich. I was the richest guy I knew. I had absolutely everything. Wine, women, songs, sex, drugs, rock and roll, however you want to look at it. I had everything that today's world would say. But I want meaning. Meaning? I wrote the books about meaning in the book about meaning. I'm all about everything you could possibly say. Well, this matters. And I didn't just do it. I did it bigger and better than anybody had ever done it before. I became greater by far than anyone Jerusalem had ever been before me. I wasn't just dabbling. I was mega hedonistic, mega everything. I was mega everything. Not because I gave up and gave in, but because I, in my wisdom, in all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. In all of this, I did it because I wanted to understand it completely. You know what I came to find myself? After I denied myself nothing that my heart desired, I refused my heart no pleasure. After my heart took delight in all my work, and this, this was the reward of my labor. I enjoyed it. But kind of like the guy who prays to be heard praying, that was my reward. At the end of the day, I'm like, I had a blast! But that's all I had. 
had a wonderful day, but that's all I had. A sad number of Americans would go, that's all I really wanted. I just wanted to have a blast. You had a blast? Yeah. Oh, cool. I genuinely enjoyed myself. It was a lot of fun until it wasn't. Drugs are great until you crash. Adultery is sexy until you get caught. Until you realize you're destroying everything that actually matters. I don't know, fill in the blank as to what you might be tempted to say. Well, I'm going to at least try this. He said, oh, I had a ton of fun doing all this highbrow, lowbrow, everybrow thing. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was just a puff of breath. My own insubstantial air chasing the insubstantial air. Nothing was actually gained under the sun. Nothing improved in this place. Not in this place. Not really. Not when it's done in this place. You want to write a great book? Great. In a century, nobody's going to read it. You want to build a a massive temple to God? Great. In a millennium, it'll be crumbled. Nobody will go in it. You want to save a child's life from drowning? Cool. Probably 50 years, 70 years, 100 years from now, that child will still be dead, right? If you do what you do to do in this place, it is pointless. Taken to its logical extreme, even the most amazing, most meaningful stuff you'd ever done is meaningless. And Solomon even says, well, maybe wisdom itself is worthwhile. Just being a light in the darkness. Wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness, he says in verse 13. The wise man has at least has eyes in his head. The fool is walking around in darkness, and that matters, doesn't it? Doesn't that matter? Isn't it that wisdom itself honors God? Doesn't it? Doesn't having wisdom itself honor God? Or as Solomon at least twice over now told us, I never stopped being wise. Did his wisdom itself honor God? Oh, I knew what I was doing. I just did it badly. I chose badly. And I came to realize the wise man can see where he's walking. The fool is blind. And they both fall in a hole and they both die. I realize the same fate still overtakes them both. I mean, logically speaking. Then I thought to myself, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Not just theoretically. Same fate is going to overtake me, too. If I'm foolish, I will someday die. And if I'm wise, I will someday die, right? Whoa. And I said to myself, this also is just a puff of breath. For the wise man, like the fool, is not going to be long remembered. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man, too, is going to die. So I hated life. I hated it. Because the work that's done under the sun, everything that you do here to do here is grievous to me. All of it is just a puff of breath. My own insubstantial air chasing insubstantial air. I, and I got this is where it really skewers me because I spend the vast majority of my life as, as a pastor, as a college prof, I spend my life trying so hard to be smart so hard to try to be wise, to try to think, to try to teach other people and to encourage other people to think. I mean, that's a large part of what my job is. You know, just stop, think. And Solomon says, right, you realize that's a waste, right? If done for itself, that is itself a waste. If all you're trying to do is help the world get more thinkinged, and the world is desperate to be less thinkaging, 
It's a waste, right? It'll all fall apart. Even if everybody in my class says, we are all embracing this. You go, right. Will they next week? If they embrace it their entire lives, will the children embrace it? So I hated all the things I had toiled under the sun to do, Solomon says, because I have to leave him to the one who comes after me. And odds are he's going to be an idiot. I'm pretty sure Trump looks at Biden and goes, yeah. I'm pretty sure Obama looked at Trump and went, yeah. And Bush looked at Obama and said, yeah. Clinton looked at Bush and went, yeah. But in Solomon's case, statistically, it's absolutely true, isn't it? If he truly was the wisest man who ever lived, whoever comes after him is going to be a doofus by comparison, right? He's like, I could do the greatest things in the world, and I'm going to go, and here, let me hand it over to a gorilla who will ruin everything. So how important is this great work? Look, I spun glass and made something beautiful. Now, gorilla, don't do any damage to it. I spent three days on that. You destroyed it in two seconds. So the creation of the thing itself was pointless, wasn't it? The thing itself didn't last because the gorilla didn't understand it. If I spin glass, it has to be for something other than to end up with a beautiful, fragile thing that no one will ever destroy. It has to be some other reason. It has to be. Otherwise, it's a waste. How important is Solomon's temple? It's pretty, it's pretty cool. You ever seen the inside of Solomon's temple? And you never will. It was really cool. And it got destroyed. And you'll never see the inside of the temple. But you will see a temple far greater than Solomon's temple. It's the temple that Solomon's temple is a shadow play of. It's the temple that the light came down and said, this is what my temple is almost like. This is as close as you can get using your little tinker toys of gold and jewels and cedar and stuff. This isn't even remotely a shadow of what this temple is. We get to see this temple, don't we? Don't we get to be in the presence of God? I start all this by saying we have a choice. Do you want to read Ecclesiastes as depressing because he rips down everything you could possibly do? Or do we want to say it's a cleanse because it reminds us this was never the temple that God lives in. This, even Solomon's temple, the entirety of the inside covered in gold, is tinker toys. This has always been the temple. Everything we do here, to do here, is pointless. So long as we do what we do under the sun, it's pointless. But that's not the only reason we do things. It can't be the only reason we spin the glass. It can't be just that. Because otherwise we're left wondering why I do all this stuff. I work so hard. I work so hard for God. I work so hard for my family. I work so hard to do good things or to do fun things or to be happy. And yesterday I was happy and today I'm really depressed. And I try to do exciting things, but I'm no longer excited today because our vacation's over and I'm tired. I try to do better things and I still feel so empty and hollow and poof. Remember where we started, like Proverbs 31? Charm itself is a lie, but beauty is a poof. It's not going to last. But a woman who fears Yahweh, 
She's to be praised. You marry a beautiful woman? I did. What if her beauty doesn't last? Marry a charming woman? I did. What if it turns out she's not as charming as she's pretending? (laughs) Wendy's charm and Wendy's beauty are gravy. Icing on the cake. And I have enjoyed Wendy's charm and Wendy's beauty. I married her because she loved the Lord. I married her heart. All the other stuff came with it, but I married her heart. And that says something. Because can I cheat? I hate cheating, but I'm going to cheat just a smidgy bit. Can I go to the end of Ecclesiastes and remind us? Solomon says, I'm not saying none of this matters. What I'm saying in Ecclesiastes 12:13, he says, now that all has been heard, now that I ripped down everything we could possibly go, yeah, well, this is inherently, he goes, no, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. This is what humanity was designed to do, was to honor God, which could sound like a resignation to fate. I would say, no, it's the whole stinking point of the book. It's the whole stinking point. And you can see why some people read Ecclesiastes and say, well, that's just depressing. But hopefully you can see where I read Ecclesiastes and I'm like, it's a cleanse and we're left with him going, why do you do anything that you do? Do it to honor God. In all things, honor Christ. In all things. Isn't that what we get over and over and over and over and over again in the New Testament? Do everything that you do to honor God. That should be the thing. You want to write a great book? In a century, nobody's going to read it, but if you write it for God's sake, to honor God more than to do this thing under the sun then that why will last for eternity. You want to build a a massive temple in a millennium, it will have crumbled, but if you build it for God's sake, to honor God more than to do the thing itself under the sun, the why will last, meaningfully last, for eternity. You want to save a child's life from drowning? You're just postponing the inevitable, but if you save them for God's sake, to honor God more than just to do that thing under the sun, the why will last irrevocably last for eternity do the greatest most impressive most amazing most diverting most world-shakingly helpful thing in the world and do it to do it in the world even you may not remember it in a decade or three i was looking at baby pictures the other day that my mom gave me and i'm like oh that's i forgot that toy i loved that toy 50 years ago I loved it. But even I forgot it. But if you do even the simplest, most mundane, most seemingly forgettable thing in the whole wide world, like pushing a broom or dropping two pennies in an offering plate, but you do it because you're honoring God, that lasts forever. If God is an eternal, unchanging God, and you do what you do to honor him, then centuries later, millennia later, zettabytes of data later, to paradise and beyond, those things will matter eternally and unchangingly. How much more when we do things that truly affect other people, that might affect other people, might affect other people? What do we preach about justice? What do we preach about peace? What do we preach about respect and dignity why do we preach it there's some fundamental differences between why 
Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X preached 75% of the same stuff for 99% of different whys. Who are you trying to honor? Why? To me, Ecclesiastes isn't a depressing book at all. It's exhilarating to be reminded of all the stuff that I tend to judge by as to whether things are going right or wrong. All these things I'm reminded by the wisest man who ever lived, by the way, that what we do matters. It ultimately, irrevocably, amazingly matters for eternity if the why is right. And it's utterly pointless if the why is wrong. Which means this incredibly deep, incredibly complex thought is binary. It's an on-off switch. Are you following God and honoring him or not? which is incredible wisdom back to Einstein saying everything in the world should be made as simple as possible but not more so come back to this simplicity choose for yourself right now why am I doing this isn't that what we talked about last time when we were in 1 Corinthians 13 you can do the greatest things in the world but if your why is wrong if I have the gift of prophecy can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge but my why is wrong if I can have a faith that moves mountains, but my why is empty, I'm... If I give all I possess to the poor, if I surrender my body to the flames, but my why is wrong, it's just... I gain. I pick these sermons on purpose, man. First Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Making the same argument that Ecclesiastes is making, isn't it? You just don't think about it in those terms. Choose for yourself right now if what Solomon says here is sad because it ruins everything that is important or exhilarating and uplifting because it underscores everything as important if the why is right and everything as a distraction if the why is wrong. So make sure that your why is right. It just means stop and choose to live life fully and richly, not myopically focused on the stuff of this place under the sun, but having the foresight to focus on what you know will last forever. The wisest man who ever lived says, stop and rethink how you think and why you do what you do. Make sure that your life is focused on eternal life, not just this place, this puff of breath. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. There's so much that we can lose ourselves in here. And I pray, Lord, help us to find ourselves in you. Help us to have our priority and our perspective set correctly, wisely. And help us to live that out. In Jesus' name, amen.